2: Happy New Year and welcome to the first 2012 edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Today we'll look back at 2011 with CARP executives Ross Mayotte and Susan Eng. And if you're like me, you probably have a list of resolutions that you swear you're actually going to keep this year. Well, psychologist Dr. Oren Amate will tell us how to make sure we achieve our goals – We'll also hear a special AARP radio feature about a woman who was inspired by Beethoven to study composition after she became deaf in her mid-twenties. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Do you consider yourself happy? Many of us probably think Canadians are among the happiest people in the world. Well, you might be surprised to learn that we actually rank 23rd out of 58 countries, That's the finding of the first annual global happiness poll by Leger Marketing. Canada shares its spot on the list with Japan. 60% of Canadian respondents were happy, 13% were unhappy, and 28% neither happy nor unhappy. The top five happiest countries in the world are Fiji, Nigeria, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Ghana. We're still doing better than our neighbours to the south. The U.S. ranked 38th. The world's unhappiest country is Romania, the only place that posted a negative score on the happiness index. While here in Canada we've had socialized medicine since the 60s, in the U.S., one of the biggest stories of the year was the heated debate over the new health care reform laws. Supporters of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which President Obama signed into law in 2010, claim the legislation will extend coverage to 30 million uninsured Americans but opponents say it is an unconstitutional intrusion of government on personal rights. The case will go before the U.S. Supreme Court in late March. If taking a vacation is on your to-do list for 2012, here are some of the best destinations for the year according to CNN.com. England tops the list. Last year's royal wedding may have been a magnet for travelers, but with both the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and the Summer Olympic Games in 2012, still more tourists are expected to flock to the UK. Next on the list is the Mayan Riviera. Their famous calendar is set to end on December 21, 2012, and the government is working hard to exploit the buzz to attract people to Mayan ruins like Chichen Itza, Tulum, and Tikal. The third spot on the list is surprising, Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton says she sees signs the country, ruled by a military junta for almost 50 years, may be genuinely opening up. That means people who didn't want to support the oppressive regime can now think about visiting this country, which has been described as one of the most authentic and unspoiled regions in the world. Other destinations on the list include Chicago, Atlantic Canada and Uruguay. And finally, for years we've been encouraged to teach younger generations the importance of safe and responsible sex. Well, the tables might have to turn. The numbers show that Zoomers are contracting sexually transmitted diseases at an alarming rate. According to the journal Med Surge Nursing, rates of syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and HPV are all up among people over 50. The report says the problem is a lack of awareness. Most boomers grew up in the free love era of the 1960s and 70s when protection wasn't a concern. Now that many are back on the dating scene, they still don't realize the importance of safe sex. And those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Are you making New Year's resolutions this year? Most of us do, whether it's a plan to lose weight, quit smoking, or get organized. Unfortunately, most of us fail to follow through. I talked to psychologist Dr. Oren Amate about the best way to make those resolutions stick. Why do we do it now?
1: Well, it's tradition. I mean, it, it's, it's one of the few universally, at least within North America and in many other countries, it's a universally accepted tradition. It's a way of connecting with others. We're social animals. So we can say we're part of something, a part of a greater thing. It's a silly tradition.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, does the fact that we seem to always do this at New Year's, how does that impact the likelihood of, of doing what we resolve to do?
1: Well, there's a problem with that. I mean, people... It would be good if we didn't just do it on New Year's. I mean, for people, not only is it tradition, but, you know, um, metaphorically, it's the start of a new year. So, we think it's a new beginning. So, people think this is my chance to finally do those things that I haven't ever done before or wanted to do and so on. So, in theory, it's a good time to do it. But in reality, it becomes a ritual. It's almost a running joke. Every year, what am I, which, you know, New Year's resolutions am I going to break this year? So uh, when people get conditioned to be like that, it's, we're almost setting ourselves up to fail because there's not much weight put on it.
2: <laughs> weight <laughs> put on it. Now, I think that is probably the top New Year's resolution. Am I wrong? Um,
1: it's, it's weight, yes, cutting down smoking. And now, especially with Zoomers, it's um, getting finances under control.
2: Let's start with the weight. Obviously, it's something that's very difficult for people, and it probably gets more difficult as we get older.
1: Right, and and trying to do it in January is, is the hardest time because our bodies are programmed through evolution to actually store on the weight.
2: Most people think that they put on a lot of weight over the holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact is when they measure it that most people only gain about a pound over the holidays – but the problem is that if they don't lose the pound, 20 years later, you have 20 <laughs> extra pounds of weight on you.
1: Right. Uh, but when they, say, when they talk about losing weight, they were already packing it on months before then, right, before the holidays. What's really important is to look at these resolutions. We'll talk about weight, for example, on three levels. One is long term, like you're saying. You know, over 20 years, it's very easy to accumulate a lot of weight, um, or 10 years. Second one is medium range. For example, don't say I'm just going to lose weight this year. Right. Set it per month, per two weeks, per three months. You know, have targets throughout the year. And then third is is the immediate, which is kind of the day-to-day, because here's the one thing that people uh, are just learning about now. It's been around for over 100 years. Freud talked about it um, over 100 years ago, um, and he called it uh, ego depletion. Today we're calling it decision fatigue, which is basically saying that throughout the day, as we make more and more decisions, as we are taxing our brain um, – we find it harder to uh, to reduce uh, to, to resist the urges that come in front of us uh, our impulse control drops significantly because we only have so many resources or so much resource in our brain so we're making decisions we're we're doing this and that and then when it comes time later on to resist the food the sweets at the end of the day that you know that sugar rush we want mm-hmm. it's very hard to do that
2: my understanding is that in terms of being able to stick to a resolution like most other things in life, the best thing is just to break it down in small, manageable bits. So don't say, I'm going to get fit in 2012. Say, I'm going to go to the gym twice a week at 5 in the afternoon.
1: Right. Um, the, the, the keys to keeping resolutions or to increasing your chances, one of them is specificity, exactly. Okay. A second one is accountability, whether it's to a group of friends, whether it's to one person. We always stick to resolutions better when there's somebody there to kind of watch over us. When we have someone to answer to, we're so much more likely to stick with our resolution. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to go back on our word. If we're doing it on our own, it's very easy to, you know, to fall down. Uh, the only problem is we have to choose the people properly because if we find somebody who's very likely to break their resolution, then we can get dragged down with them. Uh, the other one is to have kind of quasi-goals. Uh, if, if my ideal goal is, let's say, going to the gym four times a week, I should reward myself if I go twice a week or once a week. Same with you know quitting smoking. Don't say I'm going to quit smoking. Reduce it. You're smoking a pack a day, go down to, you know, 10 a day or 5 5 a day and so on over time. You build on your successes.
2: Let's go to the getting the finances in mm-hmm. order. Most boomers I know are helping their children with right. buying a home and doing all those things and many of us also have to help take care of our parents financially.
1: Right. That crunch is very difficult. And, I mean, and and that's the thing, though. That's where this helping... I mean, helping children is great. I, I'll be helping my children as well. But if I only have a certain salary, I shouldn't be living beyond my means. And for the last... 20 years or so, since the 80s, really, people have just, you know, thrown that notion out the window of, of living within your means. And
2: credit is so credit, easy, credit, credit, credit. is ridiculous, ridiculously easy to get.
1: And we've seen what happened when it comes to whether it's credit or the mortgage system. Um, it just, it, it cl- led to collapse. People aren't really conditioning themselves to kind of just step back, think, do I really, really need this? You know, is there something more important, something I actually need versus something I want? And that's all about, that's, that's part of keeping a resolution.
2: Again, is there anything different in the way that you should approach getting your finances in order?
1: It's like with even an an exercise routine. If I've never exercised before, I've never dieted before, I'm not going to do it by myself. I'm going to seek out an expert. I'm going to ask someone to help me. The same can be said for finances. Uh, There are many services available where they're done for, you, you know, free or for very low cost. And you can have somebody go through and help you get everything in order, which makes it seem less scary. I can't stress enough and you, you hit upon it earlier about the specificity. We we're talking about why we do it in you know January first, New Year's. We can find every month or every few weeks a reason to kind of work toward the goal. Valentine's Day, I want to be fit for my current partner or my potential partner and so on. Every month, if we look on a calendar, we can find another reason to kind of keep moving forward every few weeks, every few months, set a target and keep working toward that target, versus January 1st, one time out of 365 days. That way we keep the momentum going.
2: Okay, I think that's a good note to wrap things up on. Thanks so much, Dr. Amity.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: For more information, go to docamity.com. I'm Libby Zneimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review on the new AM740. Time for a short break. When we return, I'll be joined by CARP executives Susan Eng and Ross Mayott for a look at how the Zoomer cause advanced in 2011.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging for Canadians.
2: Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. 2011 was a year of major political change, with elections across the country at the federal, provincial, and municipal levels. CARP is Canada's largest advocacy group for Zoomers and it kept their issues front and center. I'm joined by CARP's VP of Advocacy, Susan Eng, and VP of Community, Ross Mayotte. Susan Eng, Ross Mayotte, thanks for joining
3: us. Lovely to be here.
2: It is the start of a brand new year, 2012. First of all, let's assess last year. Susan, what were your major accomplishments and what is still to be done?
4: Well, CARP had a very good year last year. We went through two major elections, federally and provincially, and in each case there was a lot of focus on the issues that we've been raising on behalf of older Canadians and promises being kept, which is actually more important than than them talking about it during an election. The latest that happened just before the holidays uh, was mandatory retirement. Finally being put to bed. Um, most people think that there isn't mandatory retirement anymore, but at the federal level, it was still on the books and still being hard lobbied for by federal employers. And so uh, that's something that is great, but it won't take place until next December, a year after Royal Ascent. So anybody who is who reaches the age of say 60 in an airline between now and next December will still be asked to retire even if they don't want to. But after next December, that will be against the law. So that's a major achievement at the end of the year.
2: So they, basically, they just snuck that in with the budget. Good well, thing.
4: That's it. That's for once, that was okay, because for 20 years, Groups like CARP and others have been lobbying for this change, so it isn't as if it, it, as if it was a new idea. And furthermore, the p- pilots uh, who did not want to be retired have been fighting this in the courts for eight years. So, the arguments have been, you know, aired fully aired on all sides of the arguments. So I'm not too displeased that it just got done.
2: Ross, a big year for the CARP <clears throat> chapters. Uh, you hit the magic number fifty.
3: That's right, which is a really quite a, a nice benchmark for us. More, Not so much even the number as a reflection of how many people want to start getting involved in CARP to support the advocacy, to be a community resource, to really support the cause of CARP. So, yes, uh, 50 was a target we had set for ourselves and we're very pleased to meet it. But it really is more of an indication of the tens of thousands of people that are starting to relate to what CARP's all about and wanting to be involved in some way rather than just cheering us on from the sidelines.
2: I was very glad to see in your year-end report, Ross, that it's important to you not just to do it but to make it fun and to make a community and to also have the social aspect to
3: this. That's exactly right, Libby. The, The idea that this is not you know, just grinding out your volunteer service, but it's allowing you to get together with other people and to to build synergy within your community with the demographic and to say, listen, there's, there's ways to get good work done to support the advocacy. But it's also an important way not to be out there on your own, because as you know, isolation can be a, a harmful ingredient in terms of uh, people's lives as they age.
2: Absolutely. It's a contributing factor to dementia and disease, and it's also a lot more fun to be out there with other people. Well,
3: that's exactly right, and a number of our chapters mm. have taken on that idea of what can we do together to have some fun.
2: Now, what do you see, Susan, as the big issues for the coming year?
4: Well, of course, remember, as an advocacy group, we don't talk about jolly things. We talk about the things that have to be fixed. And certainly in 2012, uh, we've decided that that should be the year to end elder abuse, rather than simply all these awareness days that we normally see. Uh, I think it's something that we have to tackle once and for all, and I think that with the kind of success that we've had in other areas, that we can really make a difference in, this, uh, in dealing with elder abuse in all forms. Uh, even now, today, the academics tell us that there may be about 10% uh, prevalence. In fact, when we ask our members how, if they know anybody, the number jumps up to about 30%. So there's a lot of underreporting even now. And I think that's something that we have to tackle. Are you working with the government on this? Well, um, of course we have to work with the government. Now, uh, they will do what they feel is necessary, and it's our job to prod them to do more. Uh, They will be keeping their promise to increase sentencing for anybody who is convicted of elder abuse. But as you can imagine, getting somebody to the point of a conviction is a, is a long process. We're going to be asking them to allocate more money and resources for investigations and prosecutions. We will ask for further support in people both identifying elder abuse cases and trying to provide in, uh, victim services along the piece. So this, it's a large complex puzzle. The government will do its role and we're there to push them to do more.
2: Okay. On that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining us, Susan Happy and new Ross. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank Happy you. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you. For more information about CARP or to become a member, go to carp.ca. I'm Libby Zneimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review on the new AM740. In just a moment, we'll hear about a woman who was inspired to study musical composition after she became deaf.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging for Canadians.
2: Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. We all know that Beethoven composed some of his best music after he became deaf, but that accomplishment is virtually unparalleled. Recently, an American named Tammy Willis received her master's degree in music composition from Virginia Commonwealth University. Like the great maestro, she wrote her music despite the fact that she's profoundly deaf. Sean Tubbs tells us her story.
5: You're listening to one of Tammy Willis's works, a composition called Hide and Seek. Tammy Willis has challenged herself to find new ways to communicate since she lost her hearing in her mid-twenties. At first, Willis was severely depressed, but the story of Ludwig von Beethoven, who composed some of his most famous works after becoming deaf, inspired her to pursue a musical education.
6: I started studying music because I really, really didn't like the silence I was living in and wanted to find some other way to acknowledge, appreciate, or be aware of sound. I started studying music and that's when I discovered that I could feel the vibrations on my eardrums and that there were patterns to them, things that I could recognize and assign a meaning to.
5: And meaning is what music is all about, according to Bill Eldridge. He's one of the instructors who guided her studies. A lot of the
3: emotional content of music comes in the pitches, A, B, C, D, F sharp, etc., and not only the rhythms or the sounds. What she's done is, to some extent, a great leap of imagination. ¶¶
5: Eldridge calls Tammy Willis's pursuit of music a heroic achievement. He says her scores also reflect a critical understanding of the last hundred years of music history.
3: She has managed somehow to write music so well, uh, even if she comes at it from a different angle and has to use a whole different set of skills, but she's managed to write music that doesn't sound like whatever one imagines a deaf person's music would sound like.
5: To compose, Willis relies on a theoretical knowledge of how musical scales function, but in order to add her own voice, she has developed a sense of how vibrations can stir musical feelings.
6: There are are certain vibrations that I find increase tension or become very unstable, and there's vibrations that feel very stable. And it's how I put the stable and unstable vibrations together that seem to make things move, make the music move, make the vibrations move and change. And that's really what it's about, is how things change.
5: When she first began to study music, many people discouraged her because they thought she would fail.
6: I don't want other people dictating to me what I can and can't do. I don't want them setting my limits. And part of studying music, I went in with the idea, okay, this is going to help me identify what my limits are. And through the course of my studies, I've not found any limits.
5: Tammy Willis is going on to pursue her doctorate in music education.
2: That was Sean Tubbs from the AARP Radio Network. I'm Libby Zneimer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. I
6: got this early to you, me.
3: body and soul
2: That's from Tony Bennett's hugely successful album Duets 2, and it's proof that young pop sensations like Lady Gaga and Justin Bieber aren't the only ones who dominated the musical scene in 2011. There were also new albums from Zoomers like Paul Simon, Murray McLaughlin, Tom Waits, Stevie Nicks, Blondie, Barbara Streisand, and Carole King. One Canadian who had a fantastic year was Robbie Robertson. His new album, How to Become Clairvoyant, was named the 10th best album of the year by Rolling Stone magazine. It's Robertson's fifth solo album since leaving the band. And it features some high-profile guest artists like Eric Clapton, Tom Morello, Trent Reznor, and Ian Thomas. Here's a sample from the album.
0: We had dreams When the night was young We would believe
2: That was from Robbie Robertson's new album, How to Become Clairvoyant. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll be back next Sunday at noon, and I hope you have a very happy 2012.
0: This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week
1: in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio.